Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. I will echo thanks for you guys being here this morning and leading us in worship. We are concluding a series this morning that we began a couple of months back. It's a series on tier one doctrines, that is those uh, beliefs that we must hold in order to be Orthodox Christians. In a world where we are divided over so many different things, I thought it'd be good to talk about those things that bring us together, those doctrines that define who we are in Christ. And last week, I ran the risk of offending some by talking about the exclusive nature of salvation in Jesus. That is, there is only one way to God, and it is through Jesus Christ. In a world in which many say there are multiple paths and many gods, we as Christians say there is but one God, and there is only one way to that God, and it is through Jesus Christ. Well, if last week's word was offensive, this week's word is likely to be confusion. Confusion about the doctrine that I'm going to talk about and maybe even confusion as to why I'm including it in this series, something I've been asking myself all week while I've been preparing to do this. Surely you would agree that one of the most important things to understand is what we believe about God. In fact, this seems so foundational that you might ask yourself, why didn't you begin with the doctrine of God rather than leaving it until the end? And yet so many have wrong beliefs about God, often without even knowing it. They simply assume that what they've been taught about God, what they've grown up believing about God is the truth, and they never take the time to dig down deeply into whether or not their view of God is actually biblical. And so I want you to see at the outset that what we believe about God matters immensely for at least two reasons. Number one, it matters because we ultimately become like what or who we worship. And so if we are worshiping the wrong God, the whole direction of our life is going in the wrong place and will wind up in a negative way. Secondly, what we believe about God drives our behavior or our actions. In other words, we live out that which we believe about God. And so once again, if our belief about God is wrong, then our actions are going to be wrong as well. And herein lies part of the problem, part of what we are talking about this morning. We often read the Bible for me. That is, we look at this book that we hold in our hands And we read it for our benefit, looking for a life verse, perhaps, that we can memorize and apply to our lives. Or we look for nuggets of wisdom that will help us live a better and happier life. We look for advice that will help us in our experiences and our heartaches. And make no mistake about it, all of that stuff can indeed be found in the Word of God. But my point is simply that when we turn to the Bible, we desperately search for something for ourselves, and in so doing, we might just miss the main truth. The Bible is not primarily a book about you. It is not primarily a book about me. 
It is a book about God. And we ought to read it that way so that we see his beauty and gaze upon that and ultimately stand in awe of who he is. And so our gaze needs to be not on ourselves and improving our lives. Our gaze needs to be upon the God who has created us and redeemed us. We need to see the God as he has revealed himself, not like we want him to be, not even like we think he should be. We need to see God as he has revealed himself so that we can have a passionate desire to know him and serve him. And so this morning we are talking about God as he has revealed himself in his word, which means we are talking about the triune God or the Trinity. Now you know why I said the word this morning might be confusing because the Trinity is indeed a confusing concept. How am I supposed to believe the Trinity? How does this rise to the level of a first-year doctrine when I can't even understand what the Trinity is? Well, I sympathize with you because I don't understand what the Trinity is either, and yet it's my task to talk about it this morning. It's very difficult to put it all together, though we can understand the, the parts that make it up, though that's not a very good way to say it. You know, when we don't understand something, we tend to ignore it or become indifferent about it. It's frustrating when we can't wrap our minds around something, and so we just ignore it altogether. I'm not very good at science. And so ever since I graduated from school many, many years ago, I have never once picked up a science book. And I have no intention of doing so the rest of my life because I don't understand it. And so I avoid it. I am indifferent toward it. And that's the way many of us are when it comes to the Trinity. It is strange. It is weird. It is confusing. And I'll acknowledge that this is a subject that I have never preached on in all of my 25 years of full-time preaching. I've preached about the aspects, the members, as we'll see in a moment, but never about the whole concept and yet it is a vital topic, which is why I've included it in this Doctrines That Define. And if you've been paying even a remote attention through this series, you will know that every single one of my titles has been a question. And so the question for us this morning is this, are you serious? I mean, do we really have to believe that God is one God and yet three, three in one? Do we really have to believe that in order to be an orthodox believer? Now, those of you who are my age or older might remember a tennis star by the name of John McEnroe. That was John McEnroe's famous question. Anytime he did not like a call from the chair umpire, those are the words that would come out of his mouth. Are you serious? Well, I'm not using it in that sense this morning, but I am using it in two different ways. Number one, I'm using it to ask the question, are you serious that we have to believe this in order to be saved when we can't even fully understand what it's about? And then I'm using it as well to say that it's a difficult concept. Are you serious that God is one and yet he's three and yet he's one? I mean, the math just doesn't add up. I'll try to answer both of those questions 
throughout this sermon. I'm using as my text this morning, Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, and I'll explain why I'm using this in just a few moments. Matthew 3, beginning in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I want to start this morning by introducing you to the members of the Trinity. That is why I have selected this text. We are not primarily talking about the baptism of Jesus this morning, but in this text, it is one of the rare cases where we see all three members of the Trinity active in the same event at the same time. The Bible never explains the Trinity. In fact, it is a word that is not found in the Bible, leading some to conclude that it is a man-made doctrine which we dare not believe and certainly must not believe. But just because the term is never used in the Bible doesn't mean it's not here. The Bible does depict the Trinity, and the Trinity is a word that is used to describe how God has revealed himself in the Bible. It is a word that means try unity, three in unity, or three in oneness. Again, it is a biblical word, not found in the Bible, but it's a biblical word to express the biblical truth of how God has revealed himself to us in three persons, but that does not mean there are three gods. There is one God manifested in three persons. Our Baptist faith and message states this, The eternal triune God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. So let me briefly introduce you to these members of the Trinity, two of which I'm quite certain you know very well. The third you might not know as well. First, we have God the Father, who most of us would readily admit is indeed God. The first verse of the Bible simply says, God, in the beginning, God created. It does not argue for the existence of God. It simply states God was in the beginning and God was active in creating all that we know. In this story of Jesus' baptism, we hear the Father speaking from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, when we think about God the Father we often think of in one of two ways. One is the harsh, wrath-filled, angry God of the Old Testament. Or perhaps we are New Testament Christians and therefore we see a all-loving God who is nothing but love. Rightly understood, both of those things are true. God is a God of wrath and God is a God of love, but we often distort both of those out of context. And so some emphasize the wrath of God, 
So much so that there is no room left for the grace and mercy of God. He is a God the Father who is just waiting to pounce on us, waiting for us to do something wrong so that he can deliver his wrath upon us. And it is no wonder that people don't want to believe in such a God, or even if they do believe in that kind of God, they certainly don't delight in knowing him and serving him. Instead, they just live their lives the best they can, trying to make sure they avoid as much of the punishment of God that they can. And still others go to the opposite direction, and they conclude that God is so loving that he condones everything and condemns nothing. He doesn't really care who you are or what you do. After all, he is a God of love. Now, let's think about this for just a moment within the relationship in which it is described. That is a father loving his son. We know that earthly fathers, generally speaking, I realize there are exceptions to most every case, but generally speaking, an earthly father loves his children. The moment he gets the news that his wife is expecting, there is excitement, there is joy in knowing that he is going to be a father. And that excitement escalates tremendously the first time he holds that baby in his arms. There is immediate love that you cannot explain to someone perhaps who is not a father, but you know it when it happens. And that love continues throughout the entirety of that child's life. Yes, there are ebbs and flows in the relationship. That is the fellowship that one would, enjoys with their children is sometimes high and sometimes low, but the love is always there. And that is in the context of a sinful relationship. That is an imperfect father with sinful children. But God the Father is not sinful. He is perfectly loving toward his son from all eternity past and into all eternity future. And he extends that love to us who have been adopted as his children through redemption. The distinction is that we are sinners and thus we disobey our heavenly father, but his love remains. And in his love, he disciplines us as his children. Just like an earthly father would discipline his child when that child begins to err, but he would do so out of love. So God does judge and God does discipline, but these things flow from his love. He even warns us of dangers. He says, do not do these things because they will not be good for you, even as an earthly father warns his children about danger that is in front of them. And when we think in these terms, we see that God the Father is a loving father, but that does not mean he approves of sin. Rather, it means he is compelled by his love to discipline us and guide us away from sin. The second member of the Trinity is, of course, God the Son, who in our text is being baptized and is called my beloved Son. The fact that the Son is a member of the Trinity is something that most of us know quite well, and it is the Son whom we focus on perhaps the most. We've already done sermons in this series about the Son being fully God and yet fully man, and so I'm not going to belabor the point this morning. But because I know that we do have guests with us today, I do want to summarize what we've talked about. We've talked about the fact that Jesus certainly claimed to be God. 
in multiple cases, even though there are some who say he never claimed to be God, the New Testament makes that very clear. In John 14, where we were last week, Philip says to Jesus, show us the Father and it will satisfy us. And Jesus says, Philip, have you been with me so long that you do not know? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I mean, he is clearly talking about himself being equal to God. We have seen people bow down before him and call him Lord, all without any rebuke from the lips of Jesus. We've heard him speak with authority. We've seen him perform miracles that authenticate who he is. We've heard him predict that he would die and rise again and do exactly that, which is why we can sing this morning that the grave can't hold us down because it did not hold Jesus down. And that is the miracle of the New Testament that authenticates who, in fact, he is. And so in spite of what some claim, Jesus clearly made himself out to be God. Others believed it and treated him accordingly. So you can, in fact, deny the deity of Jesus, but you do so in opposition to the testimony of the New Testament. So we move to our third member of the Trinity, the Spirit. God the Spirit, perhaps the one that we think of the least, certainly the one that we understand the least. In the baptism story that we've read, the Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. Not that he is a dove, in spite of the countless baptismal pictures that we see in churches. The Spirit is not a dove. That's an analogy that is a reference to say it's similar to. He descended upon Jesus like a dove. Now, there, is some, there are some who want to claim that uh, this third member of the Trinity is not a person or a God at all. It is a mere force. It is a power of God. It is not God himself. Let me briefly give you a couple texts that show that this is not true, but instead show that the Spirit is indeed God, equal to God the Father and God the Son. First of all, in Matthew's Gospel, at the very end of Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus is giving to the disciples what we call the Great Commission, we find this baptismal formula. He says, go, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So even as all three members are present at the baptism of Jesus, all three members are present at the baptism of anybody because they are equal. There is equality there that is clearly shown in that formula. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The second text I want to call to your attention, we won't turn there, but it's found in Acts chapter 5. It is the famous story of Ananias and Sapphira. The early church was just beginning, and some of the people were selling things they owned and giving the money to the church. It wasn't prescribed. It was all voluntary. And Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property that they owned, and they brought the money to the church, but they lied about how much they brought. They said they brought it all when in fact they did not bring it all and they were subsequently killed for their deception. But that's not my point. My point is that Peter says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart, listen, to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then a few verses later, Peter is still speaking and he says, you have lied not to men, but you have lied to God. 
Clearly in this dialogue, Peter is equating the Holy Spirit with God. Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And then he says, you have lied not to man, but you have lied to God. So there's really no debate here. The Bible presents all three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, as equally and fully God. Well, that's the easy part. That's the members of the Trinity. The hard part is where we head now, and that is the harmony within the Trinity. In other words, how is it possible for three to be one? And the easy and correct answer is, I don't know. We have to acknowledge that much of this is a mystery, not a contradiction, but a paradox, something that seems to be against itself, but is in fact not. Our finite minds simply cannot understand fully infinite realities. But this does not mean that we should not think about it and even marvel at its beauty. The Bible is clear that there is only one God. The famous passage, at least famous for the Jews, comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. It was called the Shema, a word that means hear. It was basically their confession of faith, something they recited twice daily. So every Jew would have known these verses. It begins with these words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God. That was their confession. And we looked at the verse last week, which I will repeat this morning, from 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, where it says very plainly, For there is one God. So there is one God, and that one God has revealed himself to us in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, even as we've already talked about. And there is no difference in their deity. There is no difference in their attributes. There are no differences in their essential nature. All three are fully God. There are differences in their primary functions, which we'll talk about in just a few moments, especially as it pertains to redemption. We see this harmony in the Trinity from the very opening pages of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Do you hear the plural? Let us make man in our likeness. A few chapters later we read, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. It is the Godhead speaking collectively. It is not that there are multiple gods, but the Godhead is using plural language to speak of the members of the Trinity, and yet they are in harmony together. Again, if you go to Genesis chapter 11, we see the same thing. This is the story about the famous Tower of Babel where God intervenes and he says, let us go down there and confuse their language. So from the very beginning, in both creation and the fall, God speaks in the plural. Again, not because there are multiple gods, but because there are three members of the Godhead working together in harmony. This harmony, or three-in-oneness, has eluded our understanding, though we have tried. And usually we've tried with analogies. We've tried to come up with pictures that will help us understand how this can be so. Even though the Bible itself never uses analogies to talk about the Trinity. Now, the Bible uses plenty of analogies, but it never uses one to talk about the Trinity. The most popular analogies that have been used through the years are these. A three-leaf clover. Not a four-leaf, but a three-leaf. Because it has three leaves, and yet it is one clover. 
a tree with three parts, the root, the branches, and the trunk, and yet it is just one tree. Or even you as an individual, you are made up of your intellect, some, your emotion, and your will, and yet you are one person with those three different aspects, unless, of course, you have multiple personalities, and that's yet another issue. The two most common analogies that have been used through the years to talk about the Trinity are the egg, a yolk, the white, and a shell, but just one egg. But do we really want to describe God as an egg? Perhaps the most famous analogy has been H2O. That is the three phases, I told you I wasn't good in science, phases is not the right word, water, steam, and ice, but all of them are H2O. But the truth is all of these analogies break down and do not adequately describe the harmony and unity within the Trinity. And so frankly, it's probably best that we not use any of them. Some might even try to describe the Trinity with, with what happens in a marriage. The Bible says that two separate individuals, they come together and they are one. And yet that's not adequate either because the members of the Godhead have never been separate and then come together. They have always been in harmony, eternally one. And so we probably are best not to use these things, understanding that we don't understand and simply acknowledging that it is true by faith. And yet there are some distinctions in the Godhead when it comes to specific activity in the world, especially when it comes to redemption or what we call salvation. We would say that the Father planned redemption. That is, the Father had the plan to, to give us a way for us to be made right with Him. And the Son accomplished that plan. The Son came down to earth, something we'll celebrate at Christmas in just a few weeks. He lived a sinless life, as we've talked about. He died a substitutionary death. He rose again victoriously. And He sits at the right hand of the Father, having accomplished salvation. And then it is the Spirit who applies all of that by calling us to the Father, drawing us to salvation, and then sealing us for the day of salvation. An example of how they all work together, not competing against one another, and so doing, providing for our greatest need. And yet I haven't dealt yet with the second aspect of our title. You remember our title, Are You Serious? And the second aspect of that is... Why should this confusing doctrine rise to the level of tier one when we can't even understand it? How can we therefore must believe it? And so I want to conclude this morning by talking about the importance of the Trinity. Now, let me be very clear that this is not something you have to understand in order to be saved. I'm not saying that at all. Because were I saying that, none of us are saved. Because none of us understand this. So I'm not saying by using this in this series that you must understand the Trinity in order to be right with God. I am saying that you do need to embrace one God revealed in three persons because that is the God of the Bible. You must accept the parts, though again that's a bad way to say it, even if you can't fathom how these parts come together. You know, it's very easy to say, I believe in God. The vast majority of people in our part of the world, our part of the country, would readily say, I believe in God. And they wouldn't be ashamed to make that claim. And yet so many of them have no idea of the God they claim to believe in. Your belief in God, your faith in Christ, 
must be in the right God and in Christ, or it is not good at all. Because if your faith and trust is in the wrong God, there are no other gods, but if your faith and trust is in a God that does not exist, then your faith is worthless. But still, we don't usually think of the Trinity as being important to our faith as evidenced by how little we think about it. An early theologian by the name of Athanasius said this, in the confession of the Trinity throbs the heart of the Christian religion. Every error results from it, or upon deeper reflection may be traced to it, all of this being a wrong view of this particular doctrine. Now, how can he make such a sweeping claim? How can he say that the Trinity, the triune nature of God, is the heart of the Christian faith, and every error from that flows from a lack of understanding about this particular doctrine? Well, I could repeat this morning the authority of Scripture. I could talk about how the Bible declares it, and thus, if we don't believe it, we are now standing in authority over Scripture ourselves. I could talk about all three members of the Trinity, as I have already, redeeming us. And so if they are not all three God, then our salvation has not taken place, and that alone ought to convince us of the importance of this doctrine. But instead, I want to spend the remainder of what little time we have left talking about how the Trinity is vital for Christian living. I have just finished a book entitled Delighting in the Trinity. I mean, the title alone is perplexing, isn't it? Delighting in the Trinity. Those are two words that we have probably never put together. Delighting and Trinity. And perhaps that speaks more of our core problem as a Christian than we tend to admit. Do we delight in God? Or do we see God as a dictator to be obeyed or a boss to be satisfied? If we have missed the love that God the Father has for God the Son, so much so that he extended that love by creating us so that he could adopt us into his family, not as servants, but adopting us as his children, to delight in the Father then through an intimate relationship with the Son is what we were created to be. We love that which is desirable to us. And we continue to love until something more desirable comes along. So desire drives behavior. We pursue that which we desire. Our problem is that we desire sin more than we desire God. Or we desire the things of this world even though we go by the name of Christian, which is why we struggle to have a relationship with God that can be described as a delight. We tend to describe our relationship with God as a duty. Here are the things I have to do. Here are the things that Christians are supposed to do. Here are the things that Christians are supposed to avoid. But very rarely do we think about our delight in God, which is a major reason why we struggle in our walk with the Lord. Because we are not truly gazing upon God, marveling at who he has revealed himself to be and what he has done for us, leading us to delight in his presence. It's the old Mary-Martha debate. You remember those two friends of Jesus? One of them busy serving in the kitchen, mad that her sister is sitting in the living room at the feet of Jesus? I've preached that before, and people come up to me afterwards, and they say, well, I'm just, I'm just like that. I just serve all the time. Well, you're not supposed to be. That's the whole point of the story. 
It doesn't mean that you're not supposed to serve. We are, but you're supposed to delight in the very presence of God. You're supposed to sit at his feet and delight in his children as, as his children and serve him as a result of that. It's not an either-or equation. One quote from the book I just referenced a moment ago states this about the Trinity. It is neither a problem nor a technicality. The triune being of God is the vital oxygen of Christian life and joy. The vital oxygen of Christian life and joy. The very thing that we must breathe in order to experience genuine life and fullness of joy. So let me ask you two questions. Do you believe in the God revealed in the Bible? I'm not asking you if you believe in God. I'm asking you if you believe in the God who has revealed himself as a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, yet one God and the only God. And the second question is this. Do you have a relationship with him through his Son, sealed by his Spirit, that leaves you delighting in the Father's love? Do you know the God the Father and how he has loved you enough to send his Son who lived and died so that you might be forgiven of your sins and after his physical departure, he sent his Spirit to draw and dwell, comfort and seal us. I leave you with these words concerning the Trinity. Try to explain it and you'll lose your mind. Try to deny it, and you'll lose your soul. It is that important. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for the way that you have revealed yourself to us as a loving God who sent his only son that we might be saved. And then you sent your spirit, the third member of the Trinity, to draw us into a relationship with you, convicting us of sin and drawing us to you and sealing us until the day we are with you. We may not be able to understand it, but we rejoice in the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, making a way that we might be reconciled and have eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.